Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. Each episode features a discussion of current topics from the current consumer trends and new products to shifts in markets and lifestyles. I'm Andrew McDougall, Associate Director of Beauty and Personal Care at Mintel, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sarah Jindal, who's the Associate Director in North America. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're also joined by our colleague in Asia, uh, Sharon Quick, who's the Associate Director out there. Hello, Sharon. Hi. And we've also got a special guest as well with Vivian Rudd joining us today, who is our Director of Innovation and Insight. Welcome, Viv. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you all here today. Uh, and without sounding like a minister, we are gathered here today because it has been quite a crazy year. Um, we're obviously the masters of prediction, but no one could have predicted the COVID-19 health pandemic um, at any point last year. Um, but the big thing really is what has the whole situation meant for trend predictions in general within categories, within beauty and personal care, uh, consumer trends, how has it changed the whole landscape? Um, that's a big question. Um, so I'm leaving it open for anyone to jump in on that. But how do you think it has changed? I mean, I think it's thrown a massive wrench into the works because going into 2020, we had, or we felt like we had a pretty good handle on the direction that things were moving. And that has all kind of, not all of it, but a significant portion of it, I think, has sort of flown out the window. Um, and I think everyone, you know, brands, retailers, manufacturers, us, we've all had to really be kind of on our toes and think a lot faster on our feet than I think we ever realized we would have to, um, which I think for a lot of us has been an interesting exercise, but probably a good thing to sort of, you know, w wake things up a little bit and, and start thinking about things very differently. Yeah, I think it's also staying very close to consumers, which is a given, obviously. I mean, we always track consumer behavior, attitudes, and a lot of our research. But really, it's more than just relying on data today to kind of, you know, understand how things are moving. It's really to be a lot more than before to be consumer-centric. So looking at, you know, delivering a lot more positive experience, um, I mean, during this pandemic situation, even post, I, I wouldn't even say we are in the post-pandemic, really. I think we are in the interim. Um, there's a lot of new redefined um, meanings to time, to space, like, like Sarah, you talk about retail and all. It really makes us look, re-look at the space around us. You know, do we have more time or do we have less? You know, we are, we are in a lockdown. Most people will say that we have more time and then you speak to some other people and they say, no, I actually don't have, I, I work later than, than usual. Um, so that will ultimately also influence, you know, um, not just trends, but also brand experiences because how do we deliver more to consumers today when they want to maybe like spend less time in, in retail places or even just around the virtual space? How do we even deliver that? Yeah, I think it takes a lot of the certainty wherever there was certainty in trend predictions. There's no sort of straight trajectory with trends anymore. And even looking at short, medium, long-term trends, that's even harder these days. So I think people are having, we certainly are having to be much more agile and much more quick thinking about how we analyze what's going on now and reflect on what we think is going to happen in the future. 
I think as well, it's kind of shown that the consumers, it's like the situation with consumers is a lot more fluid as well because like, uh, like well, like you've all said, but like Sharon pointed on the fact that obviously like some people are in lockdown, some people aren't, some people, like working situations have changed. Some people have been working from home. Some people haven't been able to work at all. And it's not really been defined by the sort of the normal demographics or categories that we would normally define consumers. Every situation is really different. It's a case of some of us have been able to, as you say, in a way, do more work. I mean, I know um, without getting the world's tiniest violin out, I know I've probably been busier <laughs> during this pandemic um, from requests and things like that. Because, yeah. You know, because of it. Whereas I also know other people, as you say, have had time to reflect and reevaluate, and I think that has had a big impact on the consumer in beauty and and beyond. Well, I think that the the sort of level of impact has been very different for different groups as well. So it's, you know, not everyone has been, depending on where you are, do you live in a very crowded urban, you know, area, or are you in a more rural space where you have kind of space around you? You know, there's there's just the impact that you've experienced. Are you in a house with a bunch of people? Do you live alone? Like all of these very sort of simple factors have had a really big shift on how people are experiencing their day-to-day lives during the pandemic. So I think that's a big part of it. And obviously that ties into then, you know, like we had the U2.0 trend a couple of years ago about the single consumer, you know, that their experience of all of this is significantly different than say, you know, the, the parents at home trying to work, homeschool their kids, you know, pay the bills, get groceries and do all those things. You, you've got very different experiences there. And I think that plays a big part as well. I think the fact that, I mean, the fact that we're all in different regions as well. So not even a case of obviously rural and, and yeah. urban and things, but obviously we've spoken um, quite a lot obviously over the last few months as well and it, the situation changes depending on which country you're in as well and um, I mean even for, well, state for, in which country yeah, for, for yourself Sarah <laughs> yeah it's, it's even more it's even more convoluted there so it really has been difficult to sort of stay on top it's like watching a, a, a ping pong match with you know 84 pe- people hitting the ball at the same time trying to figure out where you know where we go next but it's been uh, yeah interesting to say the least <laughs> that brings me on to a big topic then, which we spent so much time um, on, as we do every year, but this was obviously our big 2030 project. And now having made those predictions at the end of last year and launched the whole uh, the whole trend stratosphere out there, obviously now that the whole global pandemic and the way the world has shifted now has shifted those trends. It sort of accelerated some of them in a different way. So that's why today I kind of wanted to discuss that because I know we have internally been talking about how those 2030 trends are actually not 2030 really anymore. They're actually they're accelerating a lot more. Um, so I just wanted to go through both trends, uh, the panorama of humanity and identity traders to sort of see how we've seen that shift happen. Because what we were talking about eight, nine months ago, is different now. Um, so I think if we start um, logically with Panorama of Humanity, we were talking before about this sort of uh, this push-pull between science and nature and about building trust and transparency and really looking at all the solutions that biotech could bring us, looking at sustainability. Um, is there anyone that wants to sort of throw their hat in first and sort of talk about how the Panorama of Humanity trend has changed or has had to adapt to the current situation? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Um, I mean, there's a couple things that have really sort of jumped out to me. I think um, reliance or the the importance of science is definitely something that I think has come to the forefront. I mean, with the, the trend predictions we were making previously, obviously we were talking about this sort of slow build over the next 10 years of people sort of gravitating more towards um, relying on science and trusting in science. But we've seen that kind of almost be like an overnight shift for a lot of people. Um, especially when you're talking about, you know, your health and the health of your family and the health of your friends and, and really wanting to understand, you know, everything that's going on around you and not just rely on these like home remedies or what have you that people might throw out there. You know, when you're talking about your health, you want something that's tried and true. Um, so I think that is one area that's definitely um, shifted a lot faster than we thought. And I'm already starting to see that carry over into beauty just in some of the kind of online conversations where people are really starting to kind of dig into, you know, what is this product and where does this ingredient come from? And what does it mean and how does it work? And really wanting to kind of understand. And I think that um, it is part of the whole trust um, question that's really, I think, especially for those of us in the U.S., I think trust has become um, something very important for, you know, different people, organizations, companies, brands to figure out how to rebuild that with the consumer. Um, and I think that's really, that's kind of paving the way for everything that we're seeing happening is how can I rebuild that brand consumer relationship? Because we've seen those shifts significantly as well because of just availability um, or access, you know, with retail closing, we were able to go to the drugstore, the grocery store, um, and Amazon. I mean, those were literally the only places that we could shop from. So you really started to just buy whatever was available and, um, you know, the, the brand choice kind of went out the window. So how do we sort of spin that back around and rebuild those those relationships so those are some of the things that i've kind of been seeing more so than than anything else yeah i think where trust is placed today has definitely shifted i mean we definitely see the demand for um you know transparency a lot more information coming from real experts so you know um dermatologists food food scientists even you know these are these are the people that consumers want to turn to today um, and I think with this whole pandemic situation definitely the demand for that transparency the level of knowledge becomes even more important but I think within Asia I think what we see also in terms of where trust is being placed is also within the local culture um, the local ecosystem even and locally made products um, because a lot of I would say a lot, but a couple of um, Southeast Asia markets, for instance, we may not necessarily always have the you know right resources to formulate stuff, to manufacture a lot of beauty and personal care products. We tend to rely on a lot of our imports. Um, but with this whole lockdown situation, again, it challenges um, import-export, um, and which is why we turn back to our own resources, our own local um, culture. So I think that actually allowed localism to really build up in, in that in that sense. And, and of course, um, what didn't change to a, to a large extent is also the trust that we place on technology. I think we see a lot of uh, brands, they pivot, they, they very quickly turn to um, the digital space, even the more brands that we see, at least within Singapore. Um, and I've I think a couple uh, around the world as well, even in Australia, um, they turn to virtual consultation very quickly. 
um, one of the brands in Singapore, IDS as well, they're one of those where they created that teleconsultation with their skin doctors. Um, and then they also have their beauty advisors on the same call, such that they take note of the products that's been recommended and, you know, all these um, skin issues that people face during this uh, situation without your aestheticians. Um, then they take note of all these products and they make very swift arrangement for product delivery. So that at the same time have that overall brand connection and experience with um with brands and between brands and consumers, basically. Yeah, I think one of the words that I keep seeing in social media and also on brand websites is authenticity. Um, and that really goes hand in hand with trust. And like you, Sarah, trust is um, definitely at a premium in the UK as well right now. <laughs> um, and you're seeing the emergence or re-emergence of brands that claim to be founder-made. So that they have a definite link with the person behind the brand and actually showing people where the brand operates and sources. So there's um, one neighborhood botanicals, which I'm quite fond of because I, I just love the labeling and the product names. But they've got this whole thing where they actually tell you everything is devised in their laboratory in Shoreditch in East London. Um, everything is sourced either well, everything is sourced from UK distributors and then they in turn source either from UK growers or from named farms outside of the country. And there's another one, Pie, as well, which has had a big rebrand. Where it's, oh, I love that brand. It's great, isn't it? And um, <laughs> it is. they're actually showing videos on their website actually showing factories where it's being made, how it's being made, etc. So it's really linking the end product with the inspiration behind it and being very transparent about all the steps in between. And I think that's something that's really resonating with people right now. And I feel like we we talked about that concept with another trend a few years ago about this idea of a brand being more than just the product it makes and actually having a personality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like especially now with the whole question around, you know, trust and transparency and authenticity, it's that's a great way to to create more of a relationship and get that brand loyalty is to be about more than just the product. So, I mean, I think that's a great strategy. And we saw a lot of that happening here in the U.S. as well, you know, in the in the height of kind of quarantine was a lot of um, sort of like live streams on Instagram with brand founders and, you know, retailers kind of bringing in um, people from the different brands that they sell and offering the consumer the opportunity to have some sort of an engagement or conversation or a Q&A with that person. And again, it just creates this more personal touch, I think, than we're probably used to having with, you know, those products that we buy off the shelf. Yeah. And I think that's a really huge shift. And I don't know whether it precisely belongs to this trend or to the next one that we're going to develop, but it's almost like the death of retailtainment right now. You know, the whole thing of setting retailers up as the theatre of shopping, that's mm. gone nobody's shopping for entertainment these days, or very few are, certainly in our markets in the West. So that whole idea of reaching out digitally and creating those links of trust and of education is something that we're seeing a lot of retailers buy into and sell at the moment. 
definitely it's, it's amazing as well shift. to hear you all talk about um sort of trust because you've you sort of talked about trust as well in different ways so you've got on the one hand is like as sharon was mentioning about the localism and the, the building pride within that and, and viv you spoke about the founder story as well that's really interesting to see how that is building trust with people and then again in this whole panorama of humanity we're also seeing as sarah said at the start health is really important and i know that here in the uk and, and i've seen in, in other parts of the world as well the science has almost become really important because it's the evidence it's the information it's the fact it's the clarity of the situation obviously with the pandemic is very much um, the numbers which I know can be sort of misused in different ways as we've seen but it is very much a case of people are looking for ways to trust and reasons to trust and brands need to build upon that so if you are this uh, dermatologist brand or if you are this doctor brand then building on the trust you can get through the science and the evidence is going to be really important if you are maybe this indie brand that's maybe playing more on the natural story or the founder story again there are ways to build trust but ultimately that is really the most important thing to be building with people right now um like it was really interesting hearing you talking as well uh, sarah about sort of connecting with people and and as viv mentioned about the the death of sort of retailtainment it's a little bit different, but we've kind of seen it in the salon industry where there's so many brands that obviously couldn't sell in salon for months, um, depending on where you were. So they had to find new ways to connect with consumers. Um, and some, we saw some great examples from some big brands like um, with the like Facebook Live tutorials and the, the different root touch-up kits to say, okay, you can't go to the salon now, but, you know, buy these kits now to, to make it okay. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's been fascinating. I think the beauty industry has really shown how flexible an industry is and how strong an industry is in meeting the needs of consumers through some pretty tough times. And uh, I mean, here in the UK, we still are in tough times with uh, like a lot of spas and estheticians haven't really been able to open up properly yet. Um, I don't know what it's like in, uh, in Singapore, in, in, in the US right now. Uh, maybe you guys can enlighten us on that. But I know Viv, I mean, I've, I mean, I've been to the salon um, since it sort of reopened, but I haven't been to uh, I haven't seen any sort of estheticians or even like nail bars like properly open up. Like they open up bits, but not all. We have a lot of that that is open here, but I think there's still um, just that kind of fear, apprehension on the part of a lot of the consumer as to whether it's kind of this risk versus reward. You know, is do I really need to put myself in a potentially risky situation or can I do my nails at home for a little bit longer? So I think there's that... Um, sort of kind of personal internal conversation that goes on that, that those services are now available to everyone. But I think people are really starting to think about their comfort level and their safety level in terms of whether or not it's something that they want to, you know, partake in or take advantage of. Do I need to get a facial? Maybe, maybe not. My devil's advocate to that though, Sarah, would be surely a on a bad day, a beauty salon a skincare or haircut or whatever kind of salon, but a beauty salon on a bad day is going to be eternally cleaner than a pub or a restaurant or well, whatever see, else on a good that. day. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, no, I totally agree. And I, you know, I've, I've, we've obviously all been watching kind of the evolution of what's, what's been open and what hasn't been open across all the regions. But the fact that you could go to a pub, but you couldn't go and get your nails done just kind of, 
boggled my mind a little bit, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Because on the flip side, I can go and get a haircut and get my nails done, but I can't go to a bar. So those sorts of things aren't, I think we're just at the beginning stage of thinking about how we um, begin opening, you know, indoor things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to say the least. But again, it's, it's the risk versus reward. And I think that's a very individual kind of internal conversation people are having. So, you know, it might be open, but is their business back to where it was pre and booming? Maybe, maybe not just based on, on that personal choice. My personal decision was to weigh up whether to get my eyebrows threaded last week. You must. You must. <laughs> no, I couldn't bear them any longer. I could hardly lift my eye, open my eyes. Um, and normally there's a queue. And obviously we are not allowed to queue anymore for beauty right. appointments. You have to turn up at the mm. allotted time. Right. Well, there was no queue. I was the only person. There was just me and one really, really bored, but marginally grateful threader. Um, and that was it. But I would like to have a combination of a bar threading service, you know, kind of go to thread that a straw under my face mask and have my eyebrows <laughs> threaded. That would be great. Well, that's, that's actually what I was going to say, because there's even before this, I remember, I think I've spoke about in the future of hair care but it was about how like there are especially because in london and just by victoria station there's a pub that actually has a barbershop in it Love that. so it's kind of that kind of nice. mixed service is already there and it, i think that's a fantastic um place to be i'm also really gutted this is a podcast viv so we cannot sort of show the full extent of your lovely eyebrows, eyebrows yeah <laughs> well so, you uh, can all see what's the there. Have to take word for it. <laughs> i gave up on my lash extension i've been a big fan of doing lash extension and I just completely gave it up. Um, not that it's unhygienic whatsoever. It's just like, I don't see the need anymore. Um, mm. But what I really appreciate during this period of time, aside from cleanliness is I realized, do you, do you guys realize there's a lot of numbers that's been weighed down on us when we are outside? I'm not sure about in, in your part of the world, but at least in Singapore, there's always this number five that I always see going around because you can only maximum dine out among five people. Even oh. if you invite people to your house, it's only five. You can only have 90 minutes to actually enjoy your dinner, for instance. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really? numbers that's actually going around. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's but like definitely limits on everything, you know, everything. indoor gatherings, outdoor gatherings, how many people are allowed in the salon, how many, you know, there is a lot of numbers. A lot, a lot. Yeah. And, and definitely, I, I mean, I appreciate the cleanliness, the hygiene. Well, uh, I mean, within Singapore, definitely, even within beauty stores, definitely, there's still no product testing. But I think Same interestingly here. in, yeah, but interestingly in markets like Thailand, they have opened up a lot earlier than us, but um within their stores, how they are trying to still engage consumers to try out products is actually, you know how color cosmetics, we always need to know what's the color looking like against our skin tone, skin color. Um, so what yeah. they do is actually they place a plastic sheet over the hand of consumers such oh. that they can still kind of swatch over and then just, you know, throw away that, that piece of plastic shit. Really Maybe not idea. the most sustainable idea, but no, the idea is there, at least there's still the experience in, you know, product testing in stores, especially for color cosmetics. Well, and you mentioned sustainability and that's something we haven't discussed, but it's definitely another aspect of this trend um, that I mm-hmm. think has been really important because, you know, I think for a lot of us and a lot of the conversations we've been having kind of during the pandemic that, you know, hygiene has become the most important factor and single use and disposable things like wipes, um, 
have definitely, you know, become the, the standard for everyone, even people that didn't use them previously have sort of said, okay, this is what I'm doing. And maybe it's short term, but, um, you know, it's become almost a necessity. I mean, if I see, you know, walking down the street, if, if I see four or five um, disposable face masks or, or gloves just sort of thrown by the side of the road, you know, in a five minute walk, <laughs> um, you know, you've got all of this kind of garbage being created or this garbage that's floating, floating out around there. But um, it, it's definitely highlighted I think that that sustainability factor for a lot of people that maybe never considered it before especially I don't know if you remember kind of early on um, in lock, lockdown or quarantine or whatever you want to call it there were a lot of images coming out from different locations around the world just showing how the air pollution and water pollution everything had cleared up so quickly in such a short amount of time mm-hmm. again that was something else that really highlighted kind of our impact on the the earth as human beings and how we could have a really big impact in such a short amount of time. So I think that that conversation is definitely one that's become much more important. Um, You know, one of the things that we think about is just really starting to, and we've given this advice, I'm sure you've had the same conversation with a lot of brands, is that if you, you know, had sustainability initiatives in play prior to the pandemic, don't abandon them because Mm -hmm. they are really important. And it is sort of a long game. Um, And you really need to think about how do you reinvigorate those initiatives and how do you think about, um, you know, really investing in sort of sustainable single use opportunities because those two things don't have to be, you know, in constant sort of contretemps with one another. Um, And I think that just sets up a whole other, you know, sort of area to think about from a sustainability perspective. Well, again, that's maybe accelerated that as well, because ultimately, as part of this this panorama of humanity trend and obviously everything we see, you want safe, functional and effective products. But now we all, we do also want sustainable ones as well. It's kind of like, like you say, there's been so many examples of how um, by humans not being somewhere for a short period of time, we realize just how awful we are um, for the planet, basically. It's like, oh, we're not in the sky so much and look how clear the sky is. Oh, we're not in Venice so much. So look how clear the water is here. Um, I can see the sky like downtown LA from the hills for the, you know, I mean, it's been unbelievable. And and in a way, even though that's kind of been like, maybe not the, obviously the priority right now is the health aspect and everyone, you know, being as healthy as possible, but in a way, it may well accelerate that going forward. I mean, we, we talked about how these trends may well be accelerated from 2030, but for Panorama of Humanity, that may bring it a bit further closer to now, like the future being now, just Definitely. because from sustainability point of view. I think so, especially from a health perspective. Yeah. But from a health perspective as well, the cleaner the air is, the healthier it is for us. So, I mean, that all kind of goes hand in hand. Isn't there a conflict, though, with another trend that's coming through, which is reduced consumerism? where we're seeing um, people trying to reduce waste as a measure of sustainability and runoffs from products. So retailers like Selfridges are running um, events like Project Earth where it's all focusing on sustainable brands but also reducing your impact on the planet by reducing your purchases. I mean, it's more applicable to um, fashion where they're sort of actually renting out fashion 
and fashion accessories through the store as a way of reducing buying. I mean, Oxfam's doing that as well. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Oxfam's running a campaign, don't buy anything new in September. So that's quite a challenge for the beauty industry because how do you rent? I mean, we've shown brands that rent out, that, you know, sell repurposed makeup, but actually renting out beauty products, that's a really tricky one. But I think it's one that the industry is going to have to look at and find some kind of response to. But it's also this, I mean, like slow beauty kind of a thing, something that I think we've talked about in the past is really being more Mm. thoughtful in terms of how you craft the product and the purpose that it serves. And maybe it's more about you know, making a bigger investment and buying something that will serve multiple purposes. I mean, there's there's a lot of examples out there um, of smaller brands that are doing this already. But it, again, it's the mind shift. Um, I think for the average consumer that, that could present a challenge because they're used to, you know, going into Costco and buying 84 gallons of shampoo in a massive plastic bottle because it's really inexpensive and it can, you know, take care of their entire family. Are you going to change that consumer's mindset? Maybe, maybe not. I think that's where the refillable movement maybe is stepping in to kind of plug that gap. Yeah, I think that's an easier, that would be an easier um, shift for people to adopt, I think, definitely. I think it kind of moves us on nicely as well to our second mm-hmm. of the two trends, which is identity traders, because this idea of consumers maybe thinking about their own consumption and their own waste and what, because people are thinking about their own um, sort of beauty regime, really. We've had the time to really reprioritize what products we use. Do we need all these different products? What products What products are really important to me to help sort of shape and mold my identity? What make me feel good? Because um, obviously the identity traders trend, we sort of discussed that before. It was about identity and building community and how people felt comfortable um, and, well, fe- belonging, feeling like they, they have this sense of belonging, um, as well as also the, the digital connection stuff that we've talked about before and trust so i think we've probably talked a bit about connection and trust already today but moving into the mindset of identity traders then how do you think that trend or indeed do you think that trend has also accelerated in the same way um as i said when we talk about um people's individual use of things and how we have changed that um that has in my opinion has accelerated Uh, but how, how do you feel then that the identity traders trend um has sort of accelerated or adapted due to sort of the the current situation? I think one of the biggest areas that we talked a lot about with this trend is kind of connection and community. And I think those have become, again, these sort of big red blaring lights kind of flashing in everybody's eyes because originally with the trend, we had said, um, you know, that we've become so reliant on these digital connections and they've sort of replaced the real life ones and that ultimately people will sort of rebel against that and switch off and disconnect and want to spend more time in physical spaces with people. But, you know, you've you've now got the Starbucks has is open, but there's no tables and chairs. So, you know, we've really seen a big shift in terms of what that might look like, especially because for the last, you know, five, six months or whatever, we've had nothing but digital 
connectivity to rely upon. So I think that that pushback, that wanting to, you know, get back out into the real world and, and hug somebody or shake somebody's hand has really, you know, it's not an evolution that's going to happen over the next decade. It's it's today. It's happening right now. People are really just desperate to, to just get back into the world and have those in-person, in-person interactions that we've been kind of starved of for so long. But it also presents a little bit of a challenge because what does that look like in terms of us being able to engage with each other, um, you know, in real life in the future? And what are those, you know, public spaces for social gatherings? What do those look like in the future? I mean, that's a big, a big question, I think, for a lot of us going back to Sharon's, you know, number limits and things like that. It's, you know, there's a lot of big question marks out there. But the fact remains that we, as human beings, are built to have connections with one another. And and we haven't had that. And that's that's been mm. tough. That massively changes the retail environment, doesn't it? Because the way we obviously connect with brands, I mean, Viv, Viv mentioned earlier on about, um, again, to go back to it, but that whole shift in sort of retailtainment kind of idea. But it does sort of shift the way we shop for products because now, I mean, apps have got so much better, fortunately. So now we're using apps to try on products because, again, trying on in store isn't working the same way. Well, as you mentioned, we're finding different ways to connect with brands because, again, we can't completely do it in the same way. Uh, I mean, Viv, you sent through a, a really uh, great um, example. I'm, I'm not sure if you sent it to the global team or if it was just to our local team, but that and other stories vending machine. Mm. Oh, I love it. So yeah. pretty. And it did kind of make me think, like, maybe a vending machine is like this next step forward then because it's kind of connecting physically, but also we have, I mean, a vending machine is literally a perspex barrier, which is kind of the way that we're seeing the world right now anyway. So it, are vending machines, is this the time for the vendor? It's interesting when I was just jotting down a couple of notes for this, um, that was one of the examples I was thinking of because the way that they've positioned it is completely different to how they've positioned vending machines in the past where it was all just built on convenience. Now it's built on contactless Hmm. and it's just a different way Hmm. of talking about it. That's so smart though. That's, That's such a smart way to think about it because... I'm sure one of us had written something a few years back, you know, talking about the the death of the vending machine or how pointless they've become. And it's interesting to see things like that, like these, um, you know, these virtual reality try on apps that everyone was launching a few years ago. They were fun to play with, but did they really encourage people to buy product? Not really, but now, like all of these things that we were sort of, you know, thumbing our noses at have have real purpose. Yeah. And it's interesting because I I read a really great article a couple of weeks ago about shops that are setting up in really, really small communities in Scandinavia where the villages and the towns were almost disbanding because they didn't have any retailers there. So they've set up these sort of... um, almost like a glorified massive vending machine, but in a a small store format where you can go in and buy things contactlessly and pay for them contactlessly as well. And it's really helping to reinvigorate these small communities. And it's like a smaller scale version of what Amazon's been trying to set up with the, the, I don't know how you say it. Amazon Go. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of depersonalizing the experience, but it's also using it to build community bonds again. 
But I mean, I think the the, the quote unquote depersonalization, like you just mentioned, I, I feel like that's taken on a whole different kind of spin in this world that we're living in, because a lot of people don't want to necessarily have to you know, engage with someone in that retail setting. So I don't necessarily view that as a negative, to be honest, especially for people that know what they want. They just want to be able to go and get it and have that be very easy. And, you know, obviously technology plays a big part in in being able to do that. But um, yeah, I don't necessarily view that as a negative. It gives people the choice in how they want to interact. And I think that it's really important. It's really, I love that example you have there, Viv, about in Sweden because it's kind of, the community was such a big part of this trend when we set about so when we were discussing this a year ago community was a huge part of this and how that was going to build obviously we had no idea this was going to happen but it's amazing to see how sort of communities and authentic communities have had to be built and also just how it's been taken in different ways so like as, as the example you gave of there um, in Sweden of people of community really coming together to help each other um, we've, we've all probably heard stories in each of our regions about how the community has really pulled together to help out those that are vulnerable um, but it's also so it, it really makes you reprioritize and think about what is important. So as much as contactless or minimal contact seems to be the short-term world that we're living in right now, it's also made people almost go the other way as well and really long for physical interaction. Like people long for hugs and things like that. Um, and there's been so many weird adaptations. I don't know if you've seen these big sort of plastic sheets that people are putting on to hug yeah. people. Uh, I've, also, I've also heard in the TV industry now, in TVs and movies, what they're going to do is they're going to have these perspex sheets or these uh, these plastic sheets for people to have romantic scenes so that they can kiss. No. And, then, and then they'll remove that post-production, which, to be honest, sounds horrific. Um, but it's amazing to see how... We do still, although we have been touting the benefits of online and it has been growing so much um, over the last few years and it really has obviously come on board now and it really has propelled that part of the identity traders trend forward. It's amazing how there's not a backlash, but how people are almost wanting and willing though to go into a store. It's nice to go into a store and maybe speak to someone as well. So again, having that choice of how you interact within a community has almost been the control's almost been given back to individuals again. I uh, definitely, and I think it is about choice because, again, kind of going back to a point that we were discussing at the beginning is that everyone's experience and situation is very different, and so you know, one solution isn't necessarily going to work for everyone. So having these different choices and these different opportunities, you know, allow me to shop on my phone if I want to, allow me to go into the store if I want to, allow me to have something delivered to my doorstep if I want to. I think that sort of that flexibility in offering a variety of different choices or options for people that sort of fit in with their particular kind of lifestyle or what they're experiencing. And I know that was another big part of the trend, um, this particular trend identity traders that we talked about was not just focusing on, you know, how old someone is and where they live is a determining factor of what they might want to see from a brand or how they might want to be catered to or how they might shop is really what's the lifestyle of those people and using that, you know, the psychographic approach, um, quote unquote, as a way to really understand who is that person and what are they experiencing and how can we help them in a better way? Um, And obviously, you know, the health accessibility, you know, how mobile people are, all of that is now becoming much more 
an important part of figuring out how we, you know, cater to those different groups of consumers and appeal to them. Yeah, I think when we consider lifestyle, definitely now when we look at beauty, we talk a lot about community, the local networks. I think these are the people that we are we are kind of like looking at. It brings it actually brings about a lot of D2C kind of small scale business models today. A lot more social commerce as really, you know, up and coming. Um the rise of home bakers, Viv, I think you're one of them. <laughs> so that on its own is a community. And I think I have not seen that many fitness gurus as well during this period of time. So these are the people really to to be the one establishing the social circus. I think network expanded, but at the same time kind of got smaller because you're limited to only your local community. But that is interesting because those are now almost like your new, um, I don't know, sales channel, looking at how you can actually uh, market products. You are potentially looking at this kind of people that you, you previously wouldn't kind of consider as well. And we talk a lot about um, lifestyle, even how brands today are kind of marketing to bring that to life, to connect with consumers as well. It, it reminds me of this advertisement that took place in Indonesia with Samsung. So this, um, I know, South Korea uh, handset brand, mobile brand. So they actually dominated the Indonesian market through handset marketing. Um, and it reflected a lot of uh, about consumers' lifestyle, about how they make like vlogging, uh, life payments, online shopping. So they kind of marketed in, in that way. And, and with that, it actually brought about a lot more uh, awareness, not that it's not that the publicity is not enough, but a lot more of these Korean trends um, kind of spill over to the Indonesian market through this kind of handset marketing as well. And again, when we talk about that, it's really a lot about um, lifestyle, things that we do day to day, you know, you and I sitting sitting behind the screen, looking at our gadgets, looking at our handphone as well. And it's amazing because that kind of message is going to resonate as well because it's an authentic message that people living those lives and doing things in general will be able to relate to instantly. So I think, again, that was another thing we spoke about with identity traders, but authenticity being so important. So it's amazing how, how that shifted. Um, I should also point out as well for people who are listening, um, pre-record button be impressed that Viv did show us um, her lovely loaf of bread and that she had cooked as well, which looked absolutely delicious. It was glorious. We have seen seen the home baker in the beauty team is definitely new. I also Uh, shared my expanded waistline (laughs) and bottom as well. So be grateful that we're not on camera. We will not Um, confirm that. We will not confirm that. Um, I will say that... Neatly onto... Um, the idea of, you know, lifestyle being linked with um, stress induction. Mm. That's one thing we're all seeing um, from the various messages being pumped out to us is that daily life is incredibly stressful for everybody. And that's, you know, we've seen that reflected in the growth of CBD, which is becoming just a norm. And the reemergence of psychodermatology um, products. I mean, you know, I've been banging on about psychodermatology for bloody ages, but um, now there's a new brand that's come out called Loom, which is linking with um, psychologists as well as dermatology experts. So it's sort of backing it up with that kind of provenance and authenticity. But it's also all about how daily life plays out in your skin condition and skin appearance and all these products sort of linked to managing it. 
And it's like if there was if there was a time for that, that time is now as well because everyone has been, as I say, reevaluating. And we've had exactly. so much time to think about things and stress about yeah. things and do all yeah. of that. So, um, yeah, that's we've definitely spent so much time staring at our own faces on a computer screen, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> which in and of itself is not good, <laughs> not good for the mental, you know, mental well-being. But yeah, I'm afraid that probably does it for today. Unfortunately, I'm getting a bit. I'm getting. I'm getting a warning on my screen now about time. Um, so I should probably try and wrap things up. But I think it's probably safe to say from the vast conversation we have had that the trends kind of have accelerated a bit, not in ways that obviously we would have predicted. Um, this isn't us saying, oh, look what we predicted last year. We didn't. We had no, obviously had no idea um, the extent of what would happen. But it's amazing to see how those trends really have accelerated because of the current situation. Um, and I know that if there are further conversations to have, uh, then people can easily reach out to us. There's also a great piece uh, that you've written on the platform, Sarah which is all about um, the impact of COVID. I know we've got future webinars as well to look at how the trends have accelerated. Um, and I know that we're all sort of working on projects um, about these trends and the latest trends and how the world is changing. So uh, just for, well, lastly, just a huge thank you to all three of you for joining me today. Um, it would have been a lot worse had you not joined me because it would have just been me in a room not really knowing what to say. So thank you all um, very much for that. Um, thank you to, to you, Viv, uh, to you, Sharon, and to you, Sarah. And thank you to you, Andrew, for being yeah, a great thanks. host. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, if people would like to learn more about any of the topics we have discussed today, as I mentioned, please go to the platform. Please go to mintel.com. You'll be able to find out more information there. Uh, if you're already a subscriber to Mintel in general, then please get in touch with your account managers as well. Um, because um, they can obviously put you in the right direction for more information. Uh, but all that's left for me to say is thank you very much um, to you guys for joining me today. Um, please subscribe to Little Conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but ultimately, thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.